Okay, well, we've been in our teaching series uh, over corporate worship now for several weeks. This is our eighth week uh, together. I just wanted to spend one more Sunday contemplating corporate worship. And so if you want to follow along, as you know, this isn't uh, a verse-by-verse teaching through a book of the Bible, although we are going to start that next week. Uh, This is kind of me hopping around. Um, But your best chance to follow along if you have your Bibles in front of you, is to, to go ahead and find Amos chapter 5 and James chapter 1. So if you got those little ribbons in your Bible, that now's the time to put them in the right place. Amos chapter 5 and James chapter 1. Uh, I'm, we're going to cover both of those uh, passages briefly. And then I, I, and as we've always done in this, this particular sermon series, we're going to have three points of application as after we consider those. But being the last day that we cover uh, this series over cor- corporate worship, I'll remind you why we started into this in the first place. You know, the reality of the world that we live in right now is that there's a lot of people who used to go to church, but they don't anymore. And the, the number of people who, who used to go to church but don't anymore seems to be increasing over time to the tune of millions in America alone. And so... I can't help but wonder why it is that people stop going to church after having gone for so long. And I think one of those reasons, there's probably lots of reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is that a lot of people who used to go to church but now they don't, they may not have really known what they were doing at church when they attended in the first place. I think that's a fair assessment for a lot of people. They, they never really considered or, or applied a lot of value to the things that they actually accomplish as the gathered church. And they were just going just to go or, or going because it was expected of them or, or going because they just thought they were supposed to and you know, just doing church for the sake of doing church. And so eventually that just kind of wore off. And in the world that we live in today, you know how busy everything is? Right? We're all so busy and there's so many things engaging us in this world. So if you're just going to church just to go and it doesn't have a lot of meaning attached to it, well then your time going to church has an expiration date. Eventually something else will take that time because it has more meaning than what this has for you, right? And so we wanted to take some time to attach that biblical meaning, that biblical reasoning to the things that we do on a Sunday morning. Because this, this is a God-mandated time, routine time that we have together. And if it lacks meaning, why would you bother with it, right? If it has no real bearing on your life and how you live it, why would you, why would you come back? Why, why would this be something you do for the rest of your life? And so we've been looking at, at different components of, of corporate worship, what we are doing when we gather, and then we've been looking into Scripture to see why we do those things when we gather, because Scripture has prescribed it and prescribed it that way for a reason. But it's not merely just to make sure we do the things that we're supposed to do because we want to get it right functionally. That's not the only reason we're doing this. That's one of the reasons. But, but we want to know what the heart behind it all is supposed to be, Right? We want to understand the heart behind each and everything that we do. So we, so we not only know why we do that and where it's at in Scripture, but so that we'll actually want to do that because it's pleasing to God. Because did you know that 
you can do everything right. You can do all the right things, but still manage to make church something that is not pleasing to God, that actually disgusts God. You can, we can get it all right from the call to worship to the song selection and the execution of those songs, to the catechism we read. We can get the sermon just right. You can wear just the right outfit. <laughs> you know, we, can, we can do all of this just right, do communion just right, and it still be something that God actually despises. It can be something that he actually hates, even if we execute it with precision. How is that possible? Well, it's because if you just attend church and all that it amounts to is just a couple of hours of ritualism once a week, but it never actually changes anything in your life, you didn't actually ever participate in worship at all. It was all meaningless. It was just heartless religion. We don't want to come here and just pay lip service to God, right, while ignoring uh, how he says to live. That's not, that's that, that, would, that would ruin everything, right? Heartless religion is something that God's people have fallen into from time to time over the years frequently. And we're not immune to it either. The, the, Israel would fall into this. We'd see it all throughout to, uh, the, the Old Testament. We see that there would be times, and we see it in the New Testament too, in which, boy, they, they sure were religious, they sure did do the right things. They, they offered the right sacrifices, but their hearts just really weren't in it, right? So they still celebrated the feasts. They showed up to the festivals. They did everything in the right order, the way it was supposed to be done. But it, it, it didn't result in a changed life, right? They, did, they, they would offer up a sacrifice, but they wouldn't show love and mercy in the world. They would... You know, they would play their harps and sing the right songs, but they, they never showed any kindness or, or love in the, in the world, no justice. And so they could really sing the songs well, but it never resulted in any sort of tangible difference that could be seen in their lives outside of that temple or, or time together with the people of God. So I ask you to turn to Amos. If you would look at chapter 5 of Amos, that's the first passage I want us to consider today because it's a perfect example of just what I'm talking about. It was a time in Hebrew history in which, you know, they sure did do a lot of religious stuff, but their hearts weren't in it whatsoever. Do I need new batteries? We're going to take a station break before I read that. Give it up for Tony. What would we do without Tony? Like seriously, we don't have a plan for that. Like <laughs> so many other things can go down in what we do, but if Tony goes down, we're done. <laughs> so let's turn to Amos chapter five. And I wanna draw your attention to verses 21 through 24. This is, this is what God was wanting to communicate to his people when they were after going through a time in which they were super religious, but they weren't uh, reflecting his character into this world. So God sent his prophet Amos to tell them, to send a message to his people. Here is the message. Listen to this in, 20, in 21 through 24 of, verse five, or of chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. 
I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Wow. The heart behind the things that we do when we gather also matters. It's not just about getting it right functionally or getting the right order down or, or doing just the right things with precision uh, alone. We want to have the heart behind each and, one of those each and every one of those activities because God wants our hearts, right? You ever think to, to ask that of yourselves right now? Like, what does God want from you right now? What does God want from you right now at church? Right in this very moment, what does he want from you? We tend to ask just the opposite question, right? What am I going to get out of this today? When we go home, hey, what did you get out of church today? But why don't we ever flip that on its head? What does God want from you right now? What did you give to God when you were at church today? Did you give anything to him? Or was it all just about what you wanted to get out of it? Well, God wants your heart he wants you to be present, truly present in this. He wants this to mean something to you. He wants the, the, the religious practice that takes place in here to be attached to our hearts in such a way that whenever we leave away from here, as we scatter back into the world, it'll result in something different out there having spent time in here. Because it meant something. He wants your heart to be in church. So, so often we get caught up in what to do, but we forget to attach our hearts to what we're doing. You remember when the scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, the scribes and Pharisees, they would always try to corner Jesus and trick him and, and, and things like that. They wanted him to say something wrong, and they wanted him to be legalistic and things like that. But he did answer with a very direct answer that question. What's the, what's the, the most important commandment of all, Jesus? What, what should we need to know? You know, he didn't say, well, make sure you throw on a sport coat and show up to church every Sunday, right? He didn't say anything about heartless religion. What he said is he quoted the Shema, the most known Hebrew prayer from the Old Testament. You've all heard it before if you've spent any time in church. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus said, you want to know the, the, the greatest commandment? Of course, we know the second is close, like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. But you know, want to know the most important thing? You need to love the Lord your God with all your, all, your, all your soul, all your heart, all your strength, with your mind, everything. Your entire personhood should be wrapped up in this moment right now. It, you literally should be finding your identity in the truths of this book and God's word. Is that what you're doing right now? Is that what you're giving to God right now in this moment? You know what's so intimidating to me when I think of the Shema as I've taught over it a thousand times is I think, man, I don't think I've pulled that off for 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm not sure I've pulled that off for 10 seconds. Loving God with with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. Oh man, 
Well, I'm not doing that. I don't even think I'm doing that right now as I'm preaching. It's my mind that always gets me, right? That's the one, like, you know, I, I can, I, all of the other ones, sure, I fail at all of them, but when I think about my mind, right, my mind, it's, I, 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 you've heard me say it before, like, if you ever go looking around in my head, bring a flashlight, it's dark in there. <laughs> you know, I think about loving God with all of my mind. Oh, man, the things that go through my head on a daily basis. How in the world could I ever please God? How in the world could I ever do anything that is pleasing to God whatsoever based on how much I know myself and my ability to love God with all of those things? I don't think I can pull it off for five seconds. But then I remember the gospel. Then I remember the person who pointed us to the Shema uh, from the Old Testament. It's Jesus. I remember his obedience is what makes me pleasing to God. That's the Christian faith. I remember it's his sacrifice that washes away all of my sins and atones for all of my sins and, and makes, me, it washes, it makes me white like snow, right? It washes, it washes all the stain of sin away. I remember the, the, the gospel of Jesus that tells us that he became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I remember passages in, in Hebrews 10 that reminds me for by a single offering, that is Jesus, by a single offering, just Jesus, nothing else, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so it's all Christ alone that makes me pleasing to God. How can I be pleasing to God? Jesus, that's our answer every time. How is it that you're pleasing to God? Jesus, that's our only hope. And I'm reminded in the same chapter that tells us that in Hebrews 10, that we are promised that the Holy Spirit will, will be sent to us and it will witness to us, to our hearts, to, to teach us and to, to, to convict us, to engage with our hearts these things that we believe. And then it's after that that we're told, again, later in Hebrews 2, the very verse that we looked at to start this series, that it says, so, knowing all of these things, make sure you don't neglect to gather together. You need this gathering. With all those pieces of the puzzle together, you need that piece of the puzzle too. You need to, to gather with the local church because it's here that those beliefs are fueled, that our relationship with God and with one another is encouraged, it's sustained, it's supported, and we're changed as a result of it. This is where we hear the gospel and stick to it. This is where we hear the gospel and we commit collectively to live it out together. And so I, this series, though very uncharacteristic of us here at The Journey, because you know how much we love verse-by-verse -verse teaching through books, I wanted to do it so that we could just recognize our true desperate need for the local church so that it isn't just merely a place to associate loosely with Christianity. It isn't a place to merely just be informed of something that I didn't know like a Greek word to have a, a simple aha moment. But that it would also be a time in which we feel different. We want to come here to be transformed by the word of God to be changed, to actually be challenged with what you believe, 
to be renewed by it and so that we would actually take action, do something about it. Are you doing something about these beliefs that we hold to? Have you ever had that friend or the family member that they always got, they always got a big plan that, that's just around the corner? They always got a big idea that they're working on? You, you know what, what I'm talking about? Like that friend or that relative that every time you interact with them, they're telling you about the next big thing that's happening in their life that's it's just on the horizon. It's just around the corner in their life, and then everything's going to be different. But they only ever talk about the plan. <laughs> like they're the type of person that it, they never quite get to that horizon. They never quite ever turn the corner by the time they get anywhere remotely close to, to actually taking an action step with that plan, the plan's already changed. Because it seems like they only ever talk about the plan. The plan is the plan itself, right? Like, do you have that person in your life that they, they, they just kind of, they're always seeking, but they're never finding anything? I, I, I wonder how much of that would represent Christians who are gathered in church this morning around the world. How many people are, always, you know, they're there to seek. And I know there's a sense in which, you know, hey, God's word says if you seek, you'll find, right? But I wonder how many people are seeking without any intention of finding anything. They seek and they seek and they seek and they just want to seek. Because if they actually found something of any substance, they would have to change the way they live. It would, it would actually affect something that they do in the world. And so they don't actually want to find anything. They just want to keep questioning and seeking. And they, they don't want to land on anything concrete because it would, that, would, that would mess with the way I like to do things. Right? And so, so the, they only ever seek. They're only ever looking but they're never actually doing anything about it. They never want to land on any truth and actually commit to it in any way because it would change up their life and make them uncomfortable. Well, there's a passage that speaks directly to this. We, well, we, we studied it several times actually this weekend at our marriage retreat, and, and which I thought was great because I had it prepared in my notes and I'm like, all right, you know, they're getting a, a, an opportunity to study this before we study it again. But in James chapter 1, if you would turn there, James talks exactly about this sort of mentality and he's rebuking it. The type of mentality that, that just wants to show up and associate but never actually wants to do. The type of mentality that wants to talk about it and plan about it and plan for it and learn about it but never actually execute the plan whatsoever. That drives James crazy. And he knows people just like that. And so he's writing to them, and he's warning them, and he's rebuking them. I want to read to you uh, in chapter 1, starting at verse 19, and I'm going to take it through 27, because there's a, there's a verse in there that I want to point out, but I want you to see the context of that verse, the verses before it and the verses after it. So verse 19 starts by saying this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now here's the verse I'm getting at. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let me read that again. Be, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, it's one thing to be fooled by someone else, and it's an, enti- an entirely different thing to be someone who, who, who just fools yourself, right? Self-deception, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And so he's warning them about self-deception. He's saying, don't, don't spend your life just hearing about this stuff. Actually do something. Make a change in your life as a result of knowing it. If there's no application of this belief that we talk about every time we gather here, if there's no application of all of this truth that we've saturated this time of corporate worship together, but there's never any change outside of this, then you don't really believe it. It's not really belief. And that's what he's warning them. You've deceived yourself. There has to be an application of this. And so the way that he drives this home is that he uses a teaching illustration. It's the, it's the mirror illustration there. It's like someone who, who goes and looks at themselves in the mirror and, and then walks away and forgets who they are or what the deal is or what they look like. Here's an embarrassing situation that I guarantee everybody in this room has experienced. So it, it, it's embarrassing to even say it out loud, but I know that you've all had it happen to you at some point, whether in elementary school or in your adult life, this has happened to you. Have you ever been in like a room full of people, right? You're, you're mingling, you're talking, and you've interacted with uh, uh, two or three, four, maybe 10 people, and then you go to the bathroom, and you look in the mirror, and there's been a booger hanging out of your nose the whole time. <laughs> Have you been in that situation? That's embarrassing to even say out loud. But I just bet, if we're just being real here, that's a really common thing that's happened to you. And then you're looking in the mirror, and you're like, ah, these people are gonna think I'm a barbarian. Why didn't nobody tell me, right? Why didn't anybody point this out? But you see who you are for real, and you're like, oh my goodness. And so what do you do at that point? Well, you can't talk about it, right? You just clean yourself up, you hold your chin up, and you get back out there. Work the crowd. Move on. Act like it never happened. And then maybe rebuke your one actual friend in there that didn't tell you. Or if there's you know, food in your teeth or, or food on your face or on your shirt, nobody, you know, say, it's all the same thing, right? But how absurd would it be if you went to the bathroom and you saw you had, you know, food in your teeth or whatever and it was just really obvious, how absurd would it be if the, even after you learned about it, you just turned right around and walked out there without cleaning yourself up? Can you imagine walking back out into the crowd of people that you don't really know that well and didn't, they didn't have the courage or the connection with you to say something, that you went in there, looked in the mirror, they know you went in there and looked in the mirror, but you came back out exactly the same. Do they want the booger on their face? Maybe they want it there. Now, now it's even more awkward, it's more embarrassing. That's absurd, right? The, the, the thought that you would ever just leave that there and not do anything about it? That's what James is trying to teach us in this moment. Like, when you go into the word of God and you see these truths and you look into the law of God, it exposes something about us, each and every one of us. It teaches us that we got mud on our face. It teaches us that we're not perfect. 
we're kind of a mess. That's what the law is meant to do, to expose our sin. And so when we gather and, and center our lives on all of these truths and learn this about ourselves, and then not change how we live as we scatter back out into this world, how ridiculous is that? Do we really believe any of this whatsoever? It wouldn't make any sense. If there's no change outside of this gathering, then this gathering is disgusting to God. If it doesn't challenge you in any tangible way that you can see in your life, God hates this. He hates that you're involved in this. If it never changes you, if there's no repentance, there's no belief. That's, that's what scripture teaches us over and over. And so I wanted to do this series to push you on this, to press you a little bit, and myself as well. Because we want to be more equipped in here to be able to live a life out there that is different than the rest of the world. This is meant to equip you. We engage in all of this worship activity that it would equip us to think differently, to live differently, to act differently. We desire a change as the people of God. We know that we are all a work in progress, so we keep working on it. And the way that we keep working on it is that we keep going back to the gospel over and over and over again because that's what we need. That's the mirror that we hold up. We learn, we learn about God, and, and we, we look at his character and, and who he is in this gospel that, that renews and changes us and gives us new life, and we want to live more in light of that. We want to reflect that out into the world. But if you don't engage from your heart in this moment and in these activities, then it's all just something God despises about you. Ugh. This is how the Bible speaks to us. And so I wanted to, to close this series with just three tangible ways, three, three ways in which we need to understand that this gathering equips us to please God because I want to live a life that is pleasing to God. I want this corporate worship to be something that is pleasing to him. And so for that to happen, we need to engage in a way that we can see change. Three ways to ensure that this will equip you to do that. Here's number one. Well, this gathering will equip us. This, this, this gathering equips us with the word of God and, and, and equips us to please God when we show up with the intent to put it in practice. That makes sense? This gathering, it, it will please God when we actually show up here with the intent of putting what we believe into practice in our lives. We want to think through these truths. We want to pray through these truths so that we can change. We have to have that intent, right? I, I, would, I would bet the farm that there's no other gathering like this in your life right now that would challenge you with this much biblical uh, information. I just bet you, like, I mean, and this is how we're supposed to start the week as believers. We want to prioritize our life with the right things, and so we focus on God the first day of the week. But I just bet you, as you go out and through this, th throughout this week, this particular gathering, even though you may encounter Christian things and people along the rest of this week, this is probably going to confront you and equip you with the most amount of God's truth 
And so it's critical that you engage that truth every Sunday morning when you gather. And so we have two golden opportunities this year to truly engage the Word of God. One of them begins next Sunday. We're going to get back into that verse-by-verse teaching that a lot of people come to the journey for, and we're going to go into the book of Job. And I can't tell you how excited, excited and simultaneously intimidated I am to preach through such a difficult book of the Bible. I've mentioned before, there's like two different groups of pastors that I uh, interact with, uh, a local group of pastors, about 10 to 12 pastors, and, and then a regional group of pastors in Ohio that I, that I in Indiana and, and Kentucky that I uh, gather with online and talk to. And so when I gather with them, we like to bounce ideas off, e- off of each other and, and uh, sharpen one another. And, and I engaged both of them in the sense that I said, hey, I, I, I'm prayerfully, this was uh, a month ago, hey, I'm, I'm prayerfully considering uh, preaching through Job on Sunday morning. How many of you have done that and what resources did you use? And I asked both groups this in two different settings. And both times, it was like, I heard crickets. <laughs> there was, and especially the one group is all older pastors, and I was like, have you guys preached through this before to your church? And they're like, no. And a couple of them are, are near retirement, and they're like, no, 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 we didn't touch Job. Uh, but we can give you some books on Job, and they did re- make some recommendations there. The, the younger group of pastors that I, that I uh, in, uh, interacted with, only one of them had, had made an attempt to preach through Job at his church. He's up in Columbus, and he was preaching through Job, and he, he said, honestly, man, it got so depressing we stopped. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not reassuring at all. I was going there to be reassured this can be done, and it is profitable. And both uh, groups of pastors like, wow, thanks, guys. You made this worse. Now I'm more nervous. I went here to be comforted and helped. Uh, but it's difficult, man. That, that book of the Bible, as I mentioned last week, Job is in, a, is one, of my, it's in one of my favorite genres of the Bible. It's wisdom literature. It's books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. You got Job and this wisdom literature. It, challenge you to, it challenges how you think. And I love to be challenged in that way. And I've always been drawn to that particular genre of the Bible because everything that I think I know, you start reading through like Ecclesiastes or something like that, and it's like a big leg sweep. And it just disorients you. I didn't think God worked like that. I didn't, I, whoa, he can't do that. <laughs> what's, what's this mean? And, it, and, it, and you're constantly trying to like get up off the ground and get your balance again. And as soon as you get your balance, it's another leg sweep. And it's constantly challenging you in that way that throws you off balance. And it's doing it on purpose so that you would have balance, so that you would think differently, right? You think of Karate Kid on that pole getting hit by the waves, right? Oh, right? And then he's, it's, it's to teach him. It's to make him better. That's how these books encounter us. And that's, that's how they make us feel. It's supposed to to make you feel disoriented. It's supposed to confuse you. That's the point. And it's, it's growing you in what you know about God. The book of Job is going to be an awesome opportunity for you to be equipped to live out into this world because it's going to teach you how to think better when you're out in that world. And so it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a time of thinking differently as a believer. And I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many times you've read the book of Job. I don't care what your IQ is. It will leg sweep you at one point. 
It just has that effect on believers and always has. There's another uh, sermon series we have planned this year. As you know, we have like a sub-series that always complements what I'm teaching. And so Joseph and John and Chris are going to be preaching a sub-series sprinkled in throughout the year over the armor of God. That's in Ephesians chapter 6. And so that is yet going to be a, another opportunity to put, in, in matter, as a matter of fact, that particular sub-series over the armor of God, it is all about actually putting this belief, these truths, into action. Because all of these beliefs are summarized like a, a, an armor, uh, like, like armor. You got the, the, the helmet and the, the breastplate and, and the sword and the shield and and the, the shoes, and you're looking at all this armor, but the whole point of the, of the sermon series is, is not that you would just look at this armor like it's, like it's a display in a museum so that you can admire it and talk about it and tell you and, and be able to give the information about the, the purpose of it all and, and, and tell us about the history of all the armor. That's not what that sermon series is meant to do. The sermon series is meant to do what, what, what Ephesians, 6, Ephesians 6 is telling us to do. Put the armor on. Use it. Don't just look at it. Don't just know about it. Put it on because spiritual warfare is taking place all around you. You need to actually be equipped with this armor and know how it functions and, and, and what it's meant to do so that when you scatter back out into this world, you're ready to do something. You're ready to act. That entire sermon series is, is going to be an expansion of what we're talking about in this particular sermon, that you would be doers of the word and not just hearers. If you're going to be a doer, then actually put it on. Put these beliefs on and utilize them. Make a change out there, and, and that will be pleasing to God. But if you just look at it like it's a display in a museum, God despises that. The second way that this gathering equips you to, to please God is that it provides you with a slice of God's people to have a special affection for. Now, I kind of covered this in the very first sermon of this series, and I want to kind of reiterate that point again. It's a way that God equips you to actually live out your faith, that he gives you a local church to be in community with. There is no better way that your beliefs should be put into practice uh, than, than right here with this particular group of people. You can't care, tangibly care, like practically care for every Christian on the planet Earth. You don't have the capability to do that. But in God's providence, you're here right now with us. If you're a Christian and you gather with us every Sunday morning, these are your people in a special way. Like you are a part of the, the people of God and the children of God across the planet Earth. You're, you're a part of the people of God here in our country, in our state, in our county, and in our city. But you are especially a part of the people of God right here with the people that you can see. And so you talk about putting these beliefs into action. The people that should feel that the most in your life are the people that you gather and worship with. So if you want to put these, these beliefs into practice, affect the people here. They should be feeling it, right? You know, there's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul's writing to these uh, uh, Christians in Ephesus, left to Timothy's care. And he's, he's, he's teaching them and he rebukes them just like he does all, the, all of his other letters. 
and encourages them in many ways. One of the ways uh, he, he tells them uh, to behave in, in, in the area in which they live, he says, you know, make sure you're showing this love and kindness and mercy. Make sure you're taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. You know, don't just be hearers of this word, actually do it, right? He's, it's that kind of message that James has. But he gets really practical. This is how he says it. He says, but if anyone does not, this is after he tells them to care for orphans and wid widows and people not related to them. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, that is his flesh and blood, and is especially, especially for, for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's just this really practical teaching that Paul has for them like, your beliefs should be affecting the world. It should be affecting the community that you live in. You should, you should want to especially show love and mercy to the people uh, that are around you. But like in your own household, those are the people that are closest to you. You should especially feel a responsibility to them. If you can't even take care of the people in your own household, you're worse than a non-believer. But I wonder if it's fair for the sake of this sermon, if we could attach that not to our not only to our flesh and blood family, but to our church family, right? You know, when it comes to caring for people in this world, we want to show love and kindness and mercy and justice to all people, but we should especially want to do that to the people that we worship with. Our church family, if you can't even care for people in your own church, dare I say, you're worse than a non-believer. Is that fair to say? I don't know, that's food for thought. Maybe if we can't care for the people in our own church that we worship with, maybe we're just deceiving ourselves. Number three, this gathering equips you to please God by providing for you allies to live out your faith as we scatter back into this world. We have allies when we are a part of a local church, people that have our back. There are strength in numbers, and we need those numbers as Christians. We need that community of faith in order to live a life that is pleasing to God out there. We need those allies. Ecclesiastes, I mentioned it earlier, there's a passage in there that says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, there's nothing more pleasing to me than, as a dad than whenever I see my three sons caring for each other. You know how when you have kids, they don't always care for each other, right? They're picking on each other and getting at each other. But when I witness those moments in which one of my sons is encouraging another one of my sons, whether it be through an act of service or, or spoken word, just, just like encouraging them or complimenting them, as a dad, I'm just kind of like, it's, it's a breath of fresh air, right? It's just so life-giving, Maybe I'm doing something right, you know? Like, it's just so life-giving when, when they're encouraging and cooperating and protecting each other. Like, I love the fact that I got three boys. They're all going to be in the same building next year. And, and it, they're looking out for each other. And when I'm, whenever I'm trying to parent one, I might even get information from another because I know they're paying attention to one another and stuff like that, you know? But it just, it's so life-giving. How much more pleasing is it to God than when his people are actively caring for one another like that? when they're acti actively encouraging each other and supporting each other, showing love and kindness and mercy and justice to one another, we have allies and we should be able to feel the impact of those allies. And your best shot at having those allies in a real tangible way out there 
is by being a part of what we're doing in here. We need the local church. We need corporate worship as a routine part of our lives as believers. So just closing thoughts about that as we end this series. I, I hope that you increased the value that you place on every component of the service. I hope you increase the value of, you know, just seizing the opportunity to, to think through the call to worship and not just mindlessly respond to it. Thinking through the lyrics of the song. Did you notice even the, the, the lyrics of the song sometimes will put a definition at the bottom of the screen? You know, explain what that Ebenezer was? That's very intentional here because most of us just off the top of our head can't remember what an Ebenezer is but we want to have meaning uh, available to you here. Take advantage of that. I hope that you're, you have learned how to engage these different aspects of our service like communion and, and baptism and what it means to us as believers. Because let me tell you something about this movement that is the Christian faith. This movement will be unlike any other movement you will ever be a part of in your life. We attach ourselves and our lives to so many different things, so many different activities, so many different movements rise and fall throughout history, but also throughout your life and different seasons of life. There's going to be seasons of your life in which you're really involved in this, and then later on, a different season will come, and, and that will fade away, and there will be something new that you're involved in, and then that will fade away. That's just the, the rhythm of life. That's how it works. But here's the, here's, the, here's the truth. Of all of those movements in all of time, all of them will rise and fall. All of them whether in a big way or in a small way, every movement, every country, every, any, it's all going to rise and fall. There's only one movement you can be a part of that is sure to never fail, and it will always last, and it will, we will go into eternity with it, and that is this movement. That is the Christian faith. We may worry and, 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 think, and look at the decline, perhaps, of the Christian faith, in this season of time, but I assure you, it will not fail. Numbers may go down in some churches and go up in others. Numbers may go down in some countries in the Christian faith and up in others. And, 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 and all of that that comes and goes, the Christian faith will never fail. It never has and it never will. The Christian faith will stand at the grave of every other movement that ever was and it'll still be alive because it's eternal. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Put your faith in something that's eternal. Devote your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength to something that will never rust, that'll never be destroyed. This is your only opportunity to be involved in something that meaningful. So I hope that this has been a blessing to you and that this has challenged you in a way that you can sink your teeth into something that will last forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this season of time to think through church. Something that so many of us 
have taken for granted in different seasons of life. It's something that everyone in this room, especially myself, have been guilty of attending mindlessly, being a part of heartlessly. But Lord, by your grace, you send us the Holy Spirit to convict us, to change us. And Lord, I truly believe that during this teaching series, there has been conviction. There are people who have been bothered by this in a good, holy, and righteous way. They've heard something that has stirred up their hearts. Now, God, by your grace, would you empower them to be doers of that gospel truth, to be doers of that stirring affection in their hearts, and not just hearers only. And may all of this go to expand your kingdom and to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.